There is a long history of great leaders who had a quick wit and a razor-sharp tongue. The fact of the matter is their behavior was downright boorish at times, and they were frankly incredibly rude to people. No one personified that more than Winston Churchill. Churchill was arguably the greatest prime minister of Great Britain. He served during World War II, leading them to victory from 1940 to 1945, and then again in 1951 to 55. And Churchill used his tongue not only to uplift, inspire, and praise people, but also to put down his opponents and critics, almost to the point of cruelty. One of those who was on the receiving end of Churchill's put-downs was Clement Attlee, who replaced Churchill as prime minister. He served from 1945 to 1951. And Churchill, when asked what he thought about him, delivered this clever line. He said he's a modest man who has much to be modest about. On another occasion, Lady Astor said to Churchill, Sir, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your tea. To which Churchill responded, Madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> but you know, Churchill's cruelest and meanest comments were reserved for an MP named Bessie Braddock. It seemed that one day as Churchill was leaving the House of Commons, she confronted him and said, Winston, you are a drunk. And what's more, you are a disgusting drunk. Churchill fired back at her with an insult of his own, and he said, Bessie, my dear, you are ugly. And what's more, you are disgustingly ugly. And tomorrow I shall be sober, and you will still be disgustingly ugly. <laughs> You know, that kind of language and conversation is crude, it's vile, it's degrading. And truth be known, it's really out of place in the life of a Christian. Which is why, candidly, many Bible teachers find the language that Paul uses at the end of the paragraph that I want us to look at this morning so out of place and out of character that some people have questioned whether or not Paul really wrote it. If you know your Bible, you know that Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He was never one to mince word. He was at times a no-nonsense, in-your-face sort of fellow who spoke the truth. But when you come to verse 12, you just kind of shake your head in amazement. Friend, this is not your normal Sunday morning language. Uh, this is the language of a backstreet bully. And the frankness and the boldness with which he concludes this paragraph, where, where Paul says regarding those who were creating problems in the church, those agitators, he says, I wish they would go the whole way they were preaching circumcision. Paul says, I, I wish the knife would slip and they would emasculate themselves. 
The English Standard Version says, I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. The New American Standard says, mutilate themselves. The King James and the New King James says, cut off themselves from you. The contemporary English version renders it well. They render it, I wish everyone who is upsetting you would not only get circumcised, but would cut off much more. Now, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter which translation you use, what Paul suggests is shocking. It's out of character, or so it would seem. And some scholars have suggested that maybe, just maybe, Paul didn't write this. Or that he didn't mean it the way we've understood it. But you know what? He did write this. And what's more, he, he said what he said, and he meant what he said. And this is an incredibly devastating and descriptive assault on those false teachers who had come into the church there at Galatia. Let me just again remind you some of the background for the benefit of some of you who haven't been here or perhaps are here for the first time. Paul, on his first missionary journey, had gone into the region of Galatia and he had preached the gospel. He had gone to a number of cities and there he, he, his message met with success. And churches began and they were flourishing. The gospel was preached. People were saved. Lives were transformed. Sinners were justified. Sins were forgiven. They were given God the Holy Spirit. And they began to see the Spirit of God working in their lives and everything was going wonderfully well. As people were converted out of paganism, they were redeemed and given new life in Christ. They were conforming their lives to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The work of sanctification was taking place until some Jewish teachers showed up and they basically followed Paul everywhere he went. And they were determined to undermine his message. They were emissaries of Satan. They were false apostles. And like Satan, they disguised themselves as ministers of light. But the fact of the matter is they were representatives of darkness and they represented Satan and his kingdom. And, and the problem in part wasn't that they they had an outright anti-Christian message. They had a counterfeit message, which is what made it so deceptive and so dangerous. They were Jews from Jerusalem, pious and sincere, and they said they believed in Jesus Christ, and they commended, no doubt, the Galatians for believing in Jesus. But then they said, you know, believing in Christ alone is not sufficient to save you. In addition to belief, you have to follow the rules and the ordinances and the ceremonies and the external rituals that are associated with the law of Moses. And that means you have to affirm the Jewish ritual of circumcision and all the Mosaic ordinances. In other words, what they said is you, you Galatians can't just come out of paganism into the kingdom of God you have to, to, to get into the kingdom, you have to go through Judaism. And you have to maintain the standards of Judaism that are revealed in the Old Testament. 
And Paul sees this as a totally different gospel. In fact, just to underscore this for the benefit of us this morning, and we haven't looked at this in a while, but I want you to just slip back to chapter 1 just for a moment, and I want to read a couple of verses. Look at Galatians 1.6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. And they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now notice carefully verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you, are, what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You know, one of the things about the the book of Galatians is this is a book written with righteous anger. Paul was upset. And can I just say this? I, I think that Paul wrote this letter with a righteous indignation that sadly is missing from many many of our churches today. You know, oftentimes we're we're so hesitant to talk about anything controversial out of fear of offending people. And we don't want to be accused of being intolerant. And while we certainly want to preach about a God who is loving and compassionate, there is a place for righteous indignation especially when the gospel is being attacked and when immoral behavior is making its way into Christianity and seducing people. And what you find Paul doing in the opening fifth chapter is he confronts these false teachers. Last week we looked at the first six verses. And we learned from that that Paul says, if you accept the notion that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, there are going to be three results. Number one in verse two, he says, Christ will be of no value to you. Secondly, verse three, he says, if you do that, bear in mind, you're under obligation to keep the whole law. And then thirdly, he says in verse four, if you do that, you've been alienated from Christ and you've fallen from grace. And then in verses 5 and 6, he reminds them that a person is made righteous before God by faith and that genuine faith always works itself out in love. That is so important. Well, in verses 7 through 12, Paul talks about the evils of these false teachers. And he says there's a number of things that will happen to these false teachers or what they're trying to do, the influence that they're having. And the first thing he says in verse 7 is that false teachers, if you submit to them, will trip you up and hinder you from the truth. See verse 7? He says, you are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth. 
If you are at all familiar with Paul's writings, you know that he often likened the Christian life to a foot race. A race that, that he himself was determined to finish. And you see that in his letters. You see that in his recorded sermons. In fact, when Paul was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said in verse 24, he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, he says, this is my purpose in life, to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And Paul was able to say with great satisfaction as he was coming to the end of his life and he was writing his final letter to a young associate of his by the name of Timothy, probably just weeks from his death. Paul says, as I look back over my life, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race and I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award me on that day, and not only to me, but also who have longed for his appearing. Paul says that the Christian life is a race. But you know, it's not a sprint, it's more like a marathon. And because marathons are much longer, there's more things that can go wrong. You can get injured. You can get dehydrated and collapsed. Others stumble and get knocked off their stride before they reach the finish line. And Paul experienced that in his life. Earlier he mentioned a time when he feared that his race would be over. In fact, in Galatians 2.2, he says that some people there were starting to add to the law of the gospel and that made him worry that he was running the race in vain. And Paul here, has the same fear for the Galatians. He says, you, you started well. Things were going along great. They'd received the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. From the moment the guns sounded, they were off running the Christian life race. And then suddenly these false teachers came in. And they were in danger of being disqualified. And he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He says, as these, these Galatians were jockeying for position, someone cut them off and he knocked them off the course and they fell out of the running. That word that Paul uses there in verse 7, cut in, is an interesting Greek word. It was used of the ancient Greek games. Races back then were not held on oval tracks as they are today, but people would, runners would go out to a post and then they would come back. And understandably, there were rules against tripping, but sometimes it was possible to get away with a fair amount of interference, especially near the post, as the runners would go out to that post and then they would change directions and they would begin coming back. And one unsporting strategy for winning was to impede the progress of your opponent by cutting in on them, cutting them off. And I remember very vividly, in fact, you can actually see it on YouTube. It's interesting. I watched it this past week. But it happened in the modern Olympics. In fact, it was 1984 in the 3,000-meter race with the women. 
It turned out that there was a favorite to win that race, American track star Mary Becker, Decker, rather. Uh, she was the reigning champ in that area. And her biggest contestant in that contest was a young South African by the name of Zola Budd. Some of you might remember that. And the gun sounded, and the ladies took off running, and Miss Bud inadvertently tripped Mrs. Stanley while they were running in the pack. And Mary Decker fell awkwardly on the infield, and she was unable to finish the race. She was actually injured. And her dream of winning the gold medal was lost. Paul says that's what's happening here. Paul says these Galatians were jockeying for position and someone cut them off. They got knocked off the course and they fell out of the running. But you know, in the case of these Galatians, they weren't running for the gold. They were running for eternal life. They were running for sanctification. And the scripture says that they were being hindered. They were being kept from obeying the truth. What was the truth? Well, it was the truth of the gospel. Not take the time to turn, but if you're taking notes, jot down Galatians 2.5 and Galatians 2.14. You see, the truth of the gospel is the good news of salvation from sin and death through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul had said again and again and again and again and again that it comes to us by faith. By the way, did you notice in verse 7? This is a truth that is to be obeyed. Running a good race in the Christian life means something more than just knowing the truth. It's practicing the truth. As far as our standing before God is concerned, we believe in Jesus. We're justified by faith alone. But then, and don't miss this, this is something lacking in our teaching today. Once a person has been justified, we need to be sanctified. We need a life to live a life separate from sin. We need to live a life of holiness. We have to obey the gospel truth. As one man said, there is an unbreakable bond between theological integrity and spiritual vitality. Someone said our creed is expressed in our conduct and our conduct is derived from our creed. Listen, Christianity isn't just a, a moral code or a belief system. It's something that is to come to life in the life of the Christian. I think it's interesting that Paul asks the question, who cut in on you? But then he doesn't identify them. Obviously, he knew who they were. It was the false teachers from Jerusalem. They were guilty of poor sportsmanship. They had come in and they were tripping up new Christians by adding the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how Paul says, however persuasive they may have been, their words did not come from God. And that's the second thing he says regarding these false teachers. He says they don't represent God. See verse 8? He says... That kind of persuasion, that kind of teaching that you have to be circumcised to be saved, 
does not come from the one who calls you. Again, these people, no doubt, were claiming divine rights and divine authority and divine power. They said they spoke for God. And Paul says, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. He says, God's called you to a life of grace. We read that earlier in Galatians 1.6. Grace, as I've mentioned before, is something we do not deserve. We do not earn it. We don't produce it within ourselves. Grace is simply God's unmerited favor to the believing sinner. It's the gift of God's forgiveness to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It involves forgiveness. And as such, it's only for sinners. And tragically, these false teachers were passing themselves off as scholars. They were well-connected with Phariseeism. They came from Jerusalem. They probably pretended to have the authority of James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. But Paul says these guys are not legit. They did not come from God. The one who calls you is God. The one who calls, he, the one he calls are sinners. And the way he calls them is by his grace. You know, as I was preparing for this, I couldn't help but think of the words of an old hymn. In fact, we're going to end our service with it this morning. It was written by Will Thompson. And he wrote softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. And the chorus goes, come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. He says earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Friend, that's what verse 8 is all about. Paul says he's calling you. And hopefully he's calling you today. So Paul says these false teachers hinder the truth. Secondly, they do not represent God. Thirdly, he says they contaminate the church. They're like a, a cancer. What effect does false teaching have in the church? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. This proverb came from the bakery. Bread does not rise unless the dough contains an active culture of yeast. And what's interesting is it doesn't take much. You know, I remember when my mother used to make bread. My mother was a real pioneer woman. Not really. <laughs> but she used to make bread. And I could always remember it would just take a little tiny bit of yeast in that dough. And I can still, in my mind's eye, I can see it in a big bowl sitting on top of the fridge with a, a, a table or a, 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 a something or a towel, a towel over it. And then all of a sudden that, that bread would start to rise. And then my mom would put it in the loaves and let it rise some more. And then she'd bake it. And then we'd woof it down like animals. <laughs> but you know, it took just a, a pinch of yeast. And you know what Paul is saying here? 
It just takes a, a pinch of the law. Just a pinch of good deeds. Just a pinch of works to contaminate the gospel. Yeast, as I'm sure you're aware, in the Old Testament was symbolic of sin. Which is why the Jews in the Old Testament in Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16 were told that they were to sweep the house clean of, of yeast. They were to get rid of all of that bread and so that they would only have unleavened bread. And Paul here is reminding God's people that they have to make sure that they don't allow just a little bit of air to sneak into the church. He's thinking specifically of the teaching of these Judaizers. Their yeast was to add works to faith as the basis for justification. They wanted the people there to get circumcised. And Paul recognized that it takes just a little tiny bit of error to contaminate and corrupt the church. It's like just a little bit of cancer. If it's not dealt with, it'll grow and it'll expand. Paul says you can't allow that to happen. You know, this tells us something about theological error, does it not? It just takes a little tiny bit of error in a church. It's just a little bit of error sneaks in. And it attacks the fundamental truths of the gospel. And the end result is it can threaten the whole system. Martin Luther in his commentary on the book of Galatians said, In theology, a tiny error overthrows the whole teaching. You know what we need to do? We need to be on guard. We need to resist any and every form of error that strikes at the fundamentals of the gospel. When we add one bit, one tiny bit of human effort to the gospel, namely faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, you know what we're saying? We're saying that Christ's death on the cross is not enough. And we have to add to it. And I love the fact that Paul says that, that he's confident that these Galatians will come to their senses. See verse 10, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. He says, I'm confident that in time you'll come around to the truth. But Paul was also equally confident that those who were preaching the false gospel would be dealt with and they would come to a happy end, an unhappy end. See the end of verse 10. He says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. He says, but the one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. And this is the fourth characteristic of false teachers. Not only do they hinder the truth, not only do they fail to represent God, not only do they contaminate truth, but in the end, Paul says, they will face divine judgment. By the way, I think this is interesting that, that this verse suggests that the Judaizers had a ringleader. He wasn't sure who it was. Mark it down always in a church or always in a cult or always in a movement. There'll be one person who sort of leads the pack. And that's what Paul is suggesting here. 
He didn't name names. He may not have even known who the man was. But Paul says whoever he was, one day that man is going to have to answer to God for causing trouble in the church, and he's going to have to pay the penalty. That word penalty is an interesting word. It speaks of divine judgment. Paul, I think, here has in mind the the, the divine judgment that is coming. And he says there's coming a day when that error is going to be exposed and every false teacher is going to be judged for every false word. And God's truth is going to reign supreme. As I was thinking about this, I, I went and I read a number of passages of Scripture where it talked about how we're to deal with error in the church. And probably the most salient statement is found in the book of Jude. It's a short book. You can read it on your own. It's only 25 verses. If you listen to it on the Bible app, it's three minutes and 10 seconds. I speak from experience. And you know what he says? He says there's going to be people who infiltrate the church with error. And he says you need to be on guard. And sadly, when someone gets inside a church and tampers with the truth and the gospel, God's punishment is severe. Listen, God is serious. There is a price to be paid when you introduce error into the church or division into the church. And I just want to say again, I am so very, very thankful that in the 66 years that this church has been in existence, we have never had a church split. We've had people leave, but they left quietly. And as I've shared with the elders, and I'll share with you now, every church needs a back door. You don't want to nail it shut. You want to have a big front door. We want people coming in. But it may very well be that Mint Valley Bible Church isn't for everybody. And if they're going to cause division, if they're not going to believe what we believe, and if they're going to propagate error, there's the door. There's the door. So false teachers hinder the truth. They don't come from God. They contaminate or pollute the church like a cancer. In the end, they'll face judgment. And notice fifth and finally, they also persecute true teachers of the faith. Look at verse 11. Paul says, brothers and sisters, and I love the fact that he introduces it this way. He says, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, friend, in order to understand this verse, we need a little background. I'm sure you know that prior to Paul meeting Christ on the road to Damascus and coming to faith in Acts 9, he was a zealous and devout Pharisee. He hated and persecuted Christians. And then after his conversion, the persecutor became the persecuted. Paul found himself on the short end of the stick on many occasions. He was beaten, arrested, imprisoned, stoned, and left for dead. And the primary source of that persecution was from Jews. They absolutely dogged his step. They inflicted not only physical persecution, but also emotional pain on him. 
as they tried to undermine everything that he did in the church. Now, why did they do this to Paul? Was it because they didn't like his looks, his personality, his ethnic background? Maybe he was a Democrat instead of a Republican. Maybe he wore a mega hat, you know, make Israel great again. And people didn't like that. I don't know. But you know what? He was persecuted for preaching salvation in Christ alone through faith alone. That was the reason. And then, apparently, the Judaizers started a rumor to the contrary. They said that Paul was preaching circumcision. And they said as proof of that, Paul had Timothy circumcised when he joined the missionary team in Acts 16. And they said, Paul, Paul, you're being inconsistent. How can you on the one hand say you're opposed to circumcision and then have Timothy circumcised? Well, first, Timothy's mother was Jewish, so he was not a Gentile. Secondly, Paul had Timothy circumcised to help him do evangelistic work in the Jewish community so he wouldn't be an offense. And finally, and this is very important to remember, Paul was not opposed to circumcision in and of itself. What he was opposed to was the thinking that circumcision is a means of justification. In other words, the one thing Paul most certainly did not do was preach circumcision. He placed zero value on circumcision. And so Paul is here saying, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? And the answer is because the Jews hated his law-free gospel. And what he's saying here is that my persecution is proof that I am not preaching circumcision. In fact, that's why he says at the end of verse 11, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Unity preached, he preached the cross. He preached the salvation in Christ alone. He preached the sacrificial death of Christ as being sufficient to atone for sin. He preached the infinite worth of Jesus Christ that we are made right with God through the bloody death of his son. And any notion otherwise is absolutely ludicrous. That's what he's saying here. Well, notice how he concludes this paragraph. What he's done in the first few verses is laid out what's going to happen to these false teachers. And now he gives what many consider to be one of the most vulgar, offensive verses in all of Paul's writing. He says, as as for those agitators, those troublemakers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Wow. Can you imagine that letter being read in the church? Especially if you were one of those legalizers. I'm sure that caught their attention. It's interesting, one commentator I looked at it, and it was only about a quarter of a page in this commentary. He describes Paul's, word, Paul's words this way. They were abhorred, coarse, reprehensible, malicious, ill-tempered, and savage. That was one man's take on Paul's statement here. Still another said that it was the crudest and rudest expression in all of Paul's writings. Now, 
What are we to make of that? Again, this is, this is pretty powerful stuff. There's no denying he wrote it. But I think the key here is to think of it in terms of a, of a two-sided coin. On the one, kind, one side, we can think of Paul as being crude and vile and ugly and seemingly mean-spirited and vindictive. But you know what the other side of that coin is? It's Paul speaking out of a deep concern and love for the truth of the gospel. Friend, there is no doubt that what Paul said in verse 12 is nasty, it's vile, it's dreadful, it's ugly. But you know what? Paul was dealing with a nasty, vile, dreadful, ugly heresy that had to be confronted. And I would argue better to offend the sensibilities of people than to allow heretics into the church leading people to a Christless eternity. One man wrote, we may be quite sure that Paul's words were due neither to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge, but to Paul's deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. So what's the takeaway? Simply this. There are some things worth getting upset over. And the gospel is one of them. There are things worth fighting for and dying for. And Christian liberty and the gospel are among those. And what Paul does here is he defends the gospel. And he attacks his enemies. You know why? Because there is no room in the church for any alteration of the gospel of salvation by faith. And any deviation from that brings with it devastating results. Paul says, I, I wish these guys who were just so taken up with circumcision would take that knife to themselves and castrate themselves. Now there's one final comment I want to make. And it's one final appeal. And it's this. If you're here this morning and you're trusting anything save Jesus Christ and Christ alone to get you to heaven, I plead with you to trust Christ. That's what this passage is all about. You know, sadly, many people think they can do something to save themselves rather than admit that their only hope is found in Christ. That's why Paul says that the cross is an offense, because it is. It says that we can't do anything to merit the favor of God. And so if you're here, you're putting your trust in anything other than Jesus Christ. I plead with you, turn to Jesus Christ right now. Acknowledge before God that you're a sinner, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And put your trust and your hope in Christ. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful this morning.
that we can come into your presence. And we realize the powerful impact that the Word of God can have on our lives. And I pray, Father, this morning that in one sense this message would be a clarifying message, that the gospel is something worth defending, but it would also be a terrifying message. Help us to realize that we have the truth and that we are to proclaim it with boldness. Help us to realize that any gospel message that contains any works at all is a gospel that is under a divine curse. And so I would ask that you would give us a holy boldness for the sake of the truth. Help us to realize that people can never be rescued from an error unless they know the error they're in. And so I ask that you would take hold of every believer this morning and stir within their soul a desire to share the truth of the gospel with a holy boldness. And for those, Father, here without Jesus Christ, I pray that you would draw them to yourself in salvation. And we pray towards that end. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing that song that I made reference to. Paul talks about God calling people to himself for salvation. That's what this hymn is all about. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, maybe you know Christ, but you've not really been walking with him as you should. Why not use this song as a song of commitment that you're going to begin living for Christ? And if you know, don't know Christ, why not trust him right now? Let's sing anybody but if you've made that decision to trust Christ would you let me know at the door 
Additionally, we have a little book we'd love you to pick up. It's on the counter there in the lobby at the visitor center. It's called How to Begin the Christian Life. We want you to take it. It's our gift to you. We want you to read it over. We'd love to team you up with someone who can help you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. But whatever you do, don't leave here without having made that decision to trust Jesus Christ. Father, thank you again for what you've taught us. We pray that we would not shy away from that verse of Scripture that seems so seemingly vile and crude and coarse and almost inappropriate to be found in the Bible. Help us to realize that behind that denunciation is a passionate love for the truth of the gospel. Realizing that there are countless number of people headed to a Christless eternity because of the false teachings that are out there. And so I pray that you would give us a holy boldness. Draw people, we pray, to yourself in salvation this morning. We ask that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of God's Spirit would be with us now as we go out into the world as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And we pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen. Calling, calling, oh sinner.